Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As you know, on this podcast, we do like to cover the macro and market views of the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as those of our third-party asset manager partners and industry thought leaders with the intent on guiding you, our listeners, on how to position your portfolios for the current environment. So uh, joining me here in studio in 1285 Avenue of the Americas for the conversation today. I'm glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, uh, Jason Dreho. Jason serves as the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas. Uh, glad to have back with us as well his first in-person appearance with us up here in the studio, Torsten Slock, Partner and Chief Economist with Apollo. So with that, Jason, Torsten, it's great to be with you both. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners and their clients. Great to be with you. It's great to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Absolutely. Thank you. So where to begin? There is, of course, a lot to cover, given the environment and especially the headlines we've been seeing over the past few weeks. So maybe we can begin just there. And we do remain in a very fluid environment with respect, of course, to the banking crisis. So, uh, Torsten, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. How have these ongoing global developments impacted or altered your outlook for the U.S. economy as well as other regions such as Europe or even across the emerging markets? Yeah, so the setup for where we are today is that we were already having central banks raising rates. So we already had the economy slowing down in the US. We also had the economy slowing down in Europe. And therefore, with a profile, both from the consensus and from the Fed, and also for the ECB for that matter, of GDP growth slowing over the coming quarters, we now here a few weeks ago added on top of that a banking crisis. And the banking crisis, of course, as we'll surely talk about a lot more today, is focused, of course, on the regional banks. And if the regional banks are facing headwinds now because of higher funding costs, also maybe some issues with more regulatory scrutiny, and maybe also some worries about the asset sides of their balance sheets, well, that probably means that the regional banks are probably going to hold back more, particularly, of course, in the U.S. And the outcome of that, of course, is that we already had growth slowing. And on top of that, the banking crisis and tighter credit conditions, we'd like to see now a bit sharper slowdown, at least than what we would have expected just even a few weeks ago. So the bottom line to your question, Dan, is that this setup where we are right now is, unfortunately, that the risks to the downside have intensified. Okay, so there is an impact being felt, Jason. I know we've spoken about this over the past few weeks, but through the lens of the Chief Investment Office, thoughts on how this global banking crisis, how it might have impacted CIO's economic outlook? Well, it's definitely increased the downside risks. I think that kind of goes without saying. I think the harder part is trying to quantify what ultimately is going to be the economic impact in terms of you know the credit channel how much that could be constrained how much that's going to slow the economy and then then how much slower is that kind of on growth i'd say what kind of our view would be you know not that dissimilar to what if you look at the fed's projections last week uh, you know they're assuming on the fourth quarter of this year versus last year i think 0.47% but given that q1 gdp is tracking like around 3% it sort of almost implies negative growth for the rest of the year like maybe modestly negative so i think that's kind of a, a reasonable assumption but there's a lot of things that you have to sort of assume or have to conjecture about, like how much are banks, especially small banks, really going to curtail lending? So we don't really know what the reaction function is. We don't know on the business side, if they can't get us access to capital, will they lay off a lot of people? You know, it's been a tough market to hire. So are you going to be reluctant to let people go? Uh, already people are trying to look at consumer you know, spending patterns at credit card data and see, like, is anyone going to react immediately to the, you know, these credit concerns? And there's, you know, it's, it's, I think it's early to say if it's just how much there might be sort of in this world where now we're dealing with financial Twitter and information spreading quickly, how that can affect you know, consumer behavior. 
Yeah, and one important statistic is that the regional banks, uh, so as, as you, of course, all know too, all too well, that the large banks is banks number one to 25. From 26 to 5,000 are the small banks, and from 26 to 5,000 basically account for 30% of all assets in the banking sector and 40% of all lending. So that means that the regional banks are quite important. Uh, small banks lend to small businesses. So the consequence of that is that if they do begin to hold back for the reasons that we're talking about here, then there is a chance that that could indeed have a more magnifying effect. We try to quantify to what you said, Jason, before, that if you simulate in a little model of the U.S. economy where IG spreads stay in the tunnel of where they've been of 150 basis points wider relative to the bottom we've seen this year, and if we at the same time see a two standard deviation change in VIX, and if you also see that if the funds rate is higher on a more permanent basis, then you would expect to see that to have several percentage points lower impact on GDP growth over the number, uh, at least over the next four to six quarters in our calculations. So the conclusion is it could potentially have a bigger impact. But as you said, we just don't know quite yet. It's still very, very early what exactly the duration of this shock will be. In other words, is this going to be over in a few weeks? Or is this going to take a lot longer? So we were talking earlier, I think I saw a headline, might have been in Bloomberg, from about a week ago saying Torsten's Lock at Apollo's now saying a hard landing is inevitable. I guess, would you say at this point in time, a recession of some sort is like, it's almost inevitable? Then we can get into the contours, the magnitude. It's going to be, every recession is unique in its own regards. Uh, but how would you then think about like, what would your sort of base case for how the economy is going to play out then over the next you know, roughly 12 months or so? Yeah, no, this is very important. So there's a lot of discussions at the moment about what is the nature of this shock that we're facing. And comparisons are being made with the Orange County default, which was in the beginning of the 90s, then LTCM, which was in the late 90s, which was, of course, just a hedge fund. And ultimately, the other comparison is the UK LDI episode we had even just a few months ago. The problem with the comparison with these previous episodes is that when you look at Orange County, it was, quote unquote, just a muni. And with the LCCM, it was, quote unquote, just a hedge fund. And the UK LDI had something to do with the regulation in the UK. This was not a bank. And the problem is that not only are there things happening on our Bloomberg screens at the moment in terms of the cost of funding for banks have gone up, but what it really is unknown is what is, as you also alluded to, Jason, what is the behavioral change in the regional banks? And for that matter, what is even the behavioral change in the money center banks? Are they going to say, well, wait a minute, maybe we should be a little bit more careful with our lending. Maybe we should not go out and grow our commercial real estate book if we have this situation where these headwinds now are coming against them. So we'll need to find out over the next few weeks, most importantly in the data that comes out every Friday at 4.15 p.m. from the Fed that releases what did the small banks did do in the prior week? What did it do happens to their deposits? What happened to their lending to consumers, lending to corporates, lending to real estate? And that data over the next few weeks will already begin to give us some idea about the severity of the slowdown that we're on, going through at the moment. So you mentioned behavioral change. One of the key behavioral components would be the Fed's behavior. Uh, I know, I think if I have this right, uh, before the Fed announcement last week, you were thinking they probably wouldn't do 25. They would err on the side of focusing on financial stability versus fighting inflation. Yeah. Uh, they did do 25. You also mentioned, um, you know, like give different examples like the 94, the Orange County situation. And so I've always sort of thought of the Fed as, as people like debate, is, is Powell going to be Volcker, Paul Volcker, you know, thrashing inflation, or is he going to be like Arthur Burns and letting inflation run? I've kind of thought, well, actually, that's the wrong template. He's trying to be Alan Greenspan in the 1990s. That, you know, you kind of, instead of, you know, you know, stamping down inflation quickly, you're going to try and squeeze it out slowly. So you're going to raise rates and then kind of keep them elevated. And 94, there was consequences, um, Orange County. If we look at what the Fed did last week, it seems like, okay, they're still focused on inflation. 
you know, they'll try and keep rates maybe higher for longer, so emphasize the longer, but not necessarily higher at this point in time. And that's the approach they're going to take. Uh, that it's really about like that's the model they want to follow, kind of in, rely on inflation kind of coming down sort of opportunistically over, over a period of time. And they'll be very gradual. At least that's, that's how I think of the Fed. If they're sitting in the Board of Governors, that's their approach. You're, you know, do you have, you think they're taking a different approach? How do you, how are they approaching, you know, this problem right now? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the comparison with Arthur Burns and Paul Volcker is very important, in particular before the banking crisis. But as exactly as you're saying, I and I think you're spot on, and not many people make this point that you're making. And I think it's absolutely right that Greenspan was known for risk management. And what are the risks at the moment? We, we don't quite fully comprehend what the risks are in this regional banking crisis. In other words, how long time is it going to take? How long time is it going to persist? What will behavioral changes be? So a risk management approach would say, okay, why don't we just step back a little bit and look around? They did raise rates at the last meeting, as you mentioned, uh, and that's not what I would have expected. But I think now that they are probably going to be on hold for quite some time until we begin to find out uh, jobless claims going up, uh, non-farm payrolls declining. Is the economy beginning to soften? Because if the economy already begins to soften, and as you were mentioning, Dan, the credit card data has already in the last few weeks begun to show a few signs of weakness. Uh, and that's already a little bit worrying in the sense that, okay, if credit is beginning to tighten, how long time does it take before that feeds through and before you begin to see more of the downside risks materialize? If you were to back out the banking crisis, how would you characterize the health of the U.S. economy today? Just thinking about the labor market, which at the moment does not really seem to be indicating any signs of weakness. It was very strong. I mean, as Jason was saying up until a few weeks ago, and we have also in the room here, Hillary Roman, my great colleagues, and Jessica Sutherland, who work closely with me. I mean, we were all talking about it as the economy is still doing great. And there was just no sign of a slowdown. And I think the surprise for everyone was that the economy was doing so great, despite the rate hikes having gone all the way up to 4 5% now. And in that backdrop, I mean, the surprise to me is that, uh, OK, if the Fed already had slowed down the interest rate sensitive components of GDP, namely housing, autos, uh, anything that requires financing, if you go and buy a washer or a dryer or furniture and you need a loan, well, those things were already slowing down. But now... That slowdown, which was already in the pipeline, is now being magnified by a housing uh, slowdown on top of then a banking crisis. That all, of course, raises the risks that we might then begin to worry more about that the slowdown. This is really the case of be careful what you ask for for the Fed, that maybe the slowdown could come a lot faster than what the Fed had thought even just a few weeks ago. So if you go back all of three weeks ago before this materialized. It seems like a long time ago now. Absolutely. I mean, like we started the year where the the kind of view was difficult first half, better second half. Turns out that's probably not going to be the case. It might get worse as the year goes on. Then we had, well, it's going to be Goldilocks. Growth is accelerating. China's reopening. Inflation's falling. The Fed's going to pause. By February, oh, no, we're overheating. And now we have like the third sort of narrative take hold. But if you kind of look, you know, we don't get, the economy doesn't change that quickly on a dime. There's some underlying cyclical trends or structural trends. It has been a very unusual cycle. Obviously, the pandemic caused huge amounts of distortions. There's also long-term secular trends, like just demographics are taking, you know, have have an impact. So if you, again, go back three weeks ago, let's kind of leave the banking situation out of it. It was sort of puzzling why the economy wasn't kind of slowing down more. An idea that I sort of thought about the past year is that, at least why maybe investors were kind of getting it wrong to some extent, is that they were confusing normalization in a post-pandemic economy from deterioration. So we saw huge swings in, say, goods consumption and services. Goods was booming in 2021, services, we couldn't travel. It's like a pendulum, you're pulling them in the opposite direction, which is not typically in the economy. Things sort of move somewhat in sync, even if not perfectly aligned. So then we have the things kind of going back the other ways. Everyone's now doing like a revenge travel. I even read just this morning that the State Department can't process passports quickly enough because it's actually increasing year over year. Like people still want to travel. So there's no signs of slowdown on that, which makes me think like 
there's something kind of going on in the economy that people are suffering from money illusion. There's demographic factors that just the supply of labor is going to be constrained. So work companies won't let workers go. So again, if we abstract from the banking crisis, like I would have thought like chances of a soft landing were higher than the market had been presuming and whatever 60% economists say we'll get one. I just I don't have a lot of confidence just because it feels like we're, we're maybe trying not reading the signals of the economy overall. So just thinking about how you kind of big picture we're looking like what's going on in the economy. And this also, what does it mean if we get a recession? Do we get a recession where the unemployment rate only really rises to like four and a half percent, which would be like a pretty good outcome by all things considered? Yeah, no, a very important tailwind to the economic outlook was that people had a lot of savings left after the pandemic. And we have been burning through that in the household sector in the last several quarters. Uh, and it's still even for low income and middle income and high income households across the board, the level of savings is still reasonably elevated. So we could still have some tailwinds ahead of us. Uh, the issue, of course, as you're highlighting exactly, is that the consumer services sector, which makes up 80%, services about 80% of GDP, is still doing reasonably well. So now the question becomes, okay, but to what extent is the tightening in credit conditions now more important? To what degree will we begin? There are still more and more headlines on our screens about layoffs, uh, including today, but uh, in a number of different, in particular tech companies. And now we also saw McKinsey have a headline today. So that's, of course, also something that makes you wonder, okay, but maybe this is not only something that's isolated to how much savings is left because if you do begin to see some layoffs ultimately when people begin to lose their jobs then of course the economy will begin to roll lower and that's when the fed will begin to then cut rates but you're right and this is the unique thing and 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 of course for the stock market the, the case today is that people are looking at earnings and saying, well, earnings, last earnings season were not too bad. And if I look ahead to the earnings season that starts in a few weeks, it doesn't look like it's that bad. So why is it everyone is so worried? And why is it all our friends in the bond market are so worried? Well, that's because we have just not quite yet, as you're highlighting, seen this slowdown in the data yet. But once the slowdown comes, we could have a much faster correction to the downside in the equity market. And that's the worry you can have that... The E and the PE ratio, at least 12-month forward EPS expectations, are still reasonably elevated and not taking into account this very, very negative narrative that bond market investors have about, ooh, a recession is coming. So picking up on that point, there's been this discussion in the market over the past couple weeks, like the bond market's basically saying a recession is going to be here by, let's say, the summer, and equity markets with the S&P at 4,000 seems to be off in a little bit of la-la land, like it's all good. Usually they have to, to realign. There's an argument, though, that's been put out that – you know, one of the reasons why this could be happening is that if it's small banks that have the, the issues, they lend to small businesses. This could be a problem for small businesses, but large publicly listed companies, they're still flush with cash. They can still, like I think today there was like 13 deals in the investment grade market came out. So they can still access capital. They'll be, some sense, relatively less impacted. And therefore, the stock market is sort of, or the Wall Street's going to disconnect from Main Street. I'm skeptical of this argument. If you're going to get pain with small businesses laying off, it's going to spread. Big companies, public listed companies are not going to be immune. And I think that that theory is a little bit of element to it, but it feels like far too optimistic. You know, is that, I mean, it feels... It's so small businesses, and here we have companies with less than 250 employees that account for 80% of total employment. So that does mean that small businesses are very important. And as we talked about earlier, small businesses generally borrow from small banks, and remember, 90% of all banks are community banks. So there's a lot of different issues around what is the behavioral change coming across the entire banking sector. And I, at least in my view, I do think that that will have some implications, at least to the downside in terms of the outlook. I, as, we, as we're talking about, and as we all agree here, that the stock market seems to be quite optimistic about the outlook overall. But I do think that it's just a matter of the time. Because think about it. What is the Fed trying to do? The Fed is trying, even before this, we were debating whether we would have a hard landing or not. And now we are just adding on top of everything that's been going on, a banking crisis, which increases just the odds of a hard landing. So the bottom line is that if we do get 
a recession, which is, by the way, the consensus view that we'll get a contention by recession by the middle of this year, then that would ultimately also begin to have some consequences for, again, the E and the PE ratio having to go lower. You mentioned that you think the Fed is done hiking. Uh, what do you think is the... What's their pain threshold before they start cutting? Because the bond market's basically seen by June. Is it the first negative payroll sprint? They're they're going to start cutting. Uh, is it multiple months? Like, what do you think? Like, what's their kind of you know kind of tipping point? For so them? I think that they need to see some uh, softer economic data. In other words, we need to see something deteriorate because they can't cut rates if the economy is not slowing down. Uh, at the moment, cutting rates would certainly help. The banks that now have higher funding costs, in other words, the spreads on top of this risk-free rate have now widened so much that if you lower the risk-free rate, that would ultimately help in terms of getting a lower yield for the banks that are trying to get financing. But uh, you can't do that if the economic data hasn't really slowed. So that's why I think it's a very important question you're asking. Where will the economy start to crack? We have seen on some segments of consumers, in particular for some FICO scores in the lower ranges, that we have begun to see some signs of delinquency rates begin to move higher across credit cards and auto loans. So there's some signs already, even before the banking crisis came along, that things were beginning to slow a little bit. But we need to see that in the macro space on the aggregate data for consumption start to slow down. And we're not quite seeing that, as I mentioned, and as you know, you follow this also very closely, the credit card data from a number of different sources have shown some signs of slowing in the last few weeks. But if you look at the daily data on your Bloomberg screen for how many people travel on airplanes, as you mentioned, that's still strong. How many people go to restaurants, that's still strong. If you look at hotel bookings, also reasonably strong. There's been a little bit of weakness more recently, but still also reasonably strong, even in the weekly data. So it's taking a little bit of time before it starts kicking in. But the problem is that the behavioral change coming in the regional banks is probably going to take at least few quarters before the regional banks reorganize their balance sheets on the other side. And as we go through those quarters, the risks are still to the downside that that may involve that people simply can't get a car loan, they can't get loans for credit cards, they can't get loans for CNI loans, and particular commercial real estate loans. And if that's the case, well, that will then also come slower economic activity. Just on the Fed, I had a colleague who suggested, you know, the Fed actually would just almost rather have a recession, get it over with, and reset and have inflation come down. Rates would come down to probably solve some of the, um, you know, the mark-to-market issues with some of the banks. It's you know, sort of a cheeky suggestion. The Fed will never say they want a recession. Their forecasts essentially imply one, but Powell would never go up to the press conference and say, you know, yeah, we expect a recession too yeah, bad. No, I mean, it's, it's very difficult, of course, for them to uh, – and, and also there's all kinds of things going into their considerations. I mean, if we really think hard about it, inflation today in round numbers is about 5 if we were the FOMC and we were asked, well, can you get that down to two? One answer would be, well, let's just raise the Fed funds rate to 10 tomorrow. And I can guarantee you it would come crashing down to two. But the risk, of course, is that the economy will come crashing down a lot harder. So the challenge for them is to try to move down to two. And there's a number of indicators, in particular inflation expectations, both break-evens in markets, but also surveys are really coming down very quickly. So we may begin in the next few weeks to see, well, why don't we just talk about inflation expectations rather than talking about actual inflation because inflation expectations and market expectations are rolling over. So this is, and here's the commercial break. We have a daily spark that we send out, uh, Jess and Hillary and I, where this was the chart today. But exactly the highlight of this discussion is that inflation expectations are exactly beginning to show signs of the Fed saying potentially down the road, well, now we no longer need to worry so much about inflation because now we maybe can begin to step back from all this hawkishness that they have had now for quite some time. I mean, we still have enough current inflation levels year over year still high, but I think in the, in the Fed's back of their mind, you know, they did had a decade where they couldn't get inflation up over 2%. I, know. I think the fear, especially when you talk banking crisis, like could we risk replaying that decade where we, we try to slow things down? 
we cause a crisis, inflation falls, but it actually then falls too far. Now, like, oh, damn it, we got to get inflation expectations. And with that today back. also comes that they keep on saying that they are data dependent, they're data dependent. By definition, if I'm data dependent, I look in the rear view mirror. Mm-hmm. And now you're faced with, well, I'm data dependent, but at the same time, I have right in front of me, uh, financial conditions are tightening and there's a lot of financial instability. So if I only look at the data backwards, then that means that I'm not taking this into account at all. So that means that, well, should you not take that into account? And if you do begin to take that into account, then that means that you're no longer data dependent. It becomes really a complex discussion, which is why at the press conference that Jay Powell had last week, that uh, there were all these discussions about how do you put up on the scale? On the one hand, inflation is too high at 5%. And on the other side of the scale, you have financial stability. How do you quantify the risks from financial stability? As I mentioned before, we have tried to do that in various frameworks and figure out that, well, if this does continue, it could be really serious for the economy. So if that's the case, you would expect them to eventually say, okay, if this could be serious for the economy from a Greenspan approach, as you're saying, Jason, then that would also then involve them beginning to backtrack and eventually over the next several months begin to say, okay, maybe we don't need to be so hawkish because if it will eventually begin to come down to two. On a risk management process, if that's kind of the Greenspan mentality, if you're raising rates, you think it's sort of a linear implications for the economy. Once you get to a situation where it's a credit problem, it tends to be like with bank runs, things are good until they're not. It's, it's nonlinear. It's a jump diffusion process. And like now you're like, well, all bets are off. Yep. So I could see like, I think, you know, if things start to stabilize, I see the Fed hiking again, but I feel like they're going to be, you know, very, very gingerly at this point in time because I think they worry that things could just fall off a cliff, you know, very, very quickly. And that's, and, and that's of course, why in this environment, I mean, if you are facing, first of all, the downside risk of the economy slowing, and on top of that, you have a banking crisis, that means that the recessionary risks increase. And with that, of course, it's up in quality in credits. It's making sure to pick the right credits. Credit selection becomes absolutely key. Uh, likewise for equity selection. And you could do that in public or private markets. But overall, picking the right names in credit, picking the right names in equities becomes absolutely critical. When you have these crosswinds of high rates to get inflation down, high inflation, and on top of that, you also have a banking crisis. And all that means that if you just buy the index, you run the risk that the overall index is going to have a much bigger drawdown because of the recession. So you want to be in the parts of the index or in the parts of credit and also in private equity, those companies that exactly are best protected in a situation where recession risks are elevated. So I suspect at some point down the pike, a follow-up conversation is in order to see how the macro environment progresses from here. There's a lot we can follow up on. But today, I know, Jason, especially the chief investment office has been having a lot of conversations with our advisors, concerned clients, just given how conditions have been unfolding over the past few weeks, what to do during these times, what to do given the uncertainty that's ahead of us. What we'll do, we'll give our guest, Torsten Slock, the final word with investment implications. But from an asset allocation standpoint, Jason, what is CIO recommending at this time? I think Torsten teed me up because, you know, the mantra was of this past update was kind of buy high quality bonds, basically. You know, from a preference perspective, last week when we updated our house view, we downgraded equities broadly as to, to least preferred, upgraded, you know, fixed income to most preferred, really driven by the view like now's the time to buy high quality bonds. It could be higher quality investment grade corporate bonds, agency invest, but things like that. So, you know, being sort of selective within the credit universe to higher quality, not, I mean, obviously individual names as well. And it's not necessary that we're really pessimistic on equities. We're not calling for like the S&P to fall to 3,200. But an S&P at 4,000 feels like the risk reward is kind of, I'd say, returnless risk, a lot of volatility without much return, whereas you can buy investment grade corporate bonds and get like five, five and a half percent right now, relatively modest uh, you know, volatility. And you think about different scenarios, like if we do get a recession, those earnings come down, as you say, equities are going lower. 
rates are also probably going lower. And so that kind of offsets some of the spread winding. So it feels like and across different scenarios, you can construct soft landing, hard landing, mild recession, except then when everything goes perfectly well, equities are probably higher and maybe they outperform. But every other scenario, it feels like IG and high quality bonds would hold as well or, or better than, than equities without some of the extreme kind of volatility and uncertainty. So that's kind of a broad kind of, you know, kind of guidance that we're giving right now. Oh, that makes complete sense. I mean, and this is a great conversation we've had here. I mean, if the themes are that rates are going to stay high for a while longer to get inflation under control, inflation will not come down as quickly as we all and the Fed would like. I think that there are a number of consequences that come out directly of those macro themes. Namely, number one is, of course, rates are very important for tech and growth. And if the goal for the Fed is to try to cool the economy down, that means that tech and growth will not be performing very well over the coming quarters. At the same time, venture capital is likely to continue to be in some pain here for quite some time, simply because of rates staying elevated to make sure that we get inflation to come down. So that's why I think value and up in quality is very important. And I also think that both private credit and private equity, and of course, Picking the right assets in these cross currents becomes extremely important and becomes very, very relevant because you want to stay away from just buying the broad index and you want to make sure that you pick the right assets that exactly are as isolated as you can be from high inflation, high rates and banking crisis. And that also means, as you're saying, Jason, you don't want to be in highly levered companies. You want to be up in quality. And on the equity side, you also want at the same time to be in those companies that benefit the most once we do get finally through this episode of the banking situation. So there's a lot of things to think about. So another way of saying this, uh, I like to think of this as the homework is finally being rewarded again. Uh, <laughs> because for a long time, as you and I also have talked about, Jason, there was the case that when easy money was flowing, everything was going up. All assets just kept on moving higher and higher. Uh, but now it is absolutely the case that inflation needs to come back to 2% again. So now we need to go back and do the hard work of figuring out what assets and what asset classes is it actually that will be outperforming in private credit and private equity in particular when you have a situation where we are in a very, very different environment relative to what we saw for the 10 years after the financial crisis. It's definitely easier to look smarter as an investor when the Fed's doing QE than when it's doing QT. So. Absolutely. <laughs> so when the tide is coming out and in here, as you know, yeah, we yeah. will all exactly need to again figure out, okay, well, we have all this education, all of us, and have thought so much about financial markets for all these years. And now it actually is time to do the homework again and figure out, okay, with all these cross currents, what are the names and the companies that actually will be performing well? And in our view, what are the names and companies exactly that are, in this case, most um, protected, even if there is a sharp slowdown in the economy coming? You did mention I think tech and you know, tech stocks growth, big mega cap growth stocks have done very well in the past couple of weeks. I think there's a bit of false confidence that investors have that these will be immune to slowdowns. They're still, they're so big, they are the economy. If the economy slows down, they're going to be impacted as well. So yeah, and the double whammy, of course, to tech and growth is that, again, let's not forget why the Fed is raising rates. It is to slow down consumer growth. It is to slow down cap expanding. It's slow down hiring. So the Fed's idea is exactly to slow down growth. So if that's the case, growth and tech in particular is hit by the double whammy, both of slower growth and at the same time rates staying high in order to get inflation under control? Well, it's an ongoing endeavor, the work that is, but you've both delivered our listeners, our clients, with a lot of actionable considerations when it comes to positioning. Very fascinating hearing both of your views on the macroeconomic environment. As mentioned, it would be great to get the three of us back here at the table at some point down the pike to follow up and see how conditions evolve from here, though. Torsten Slonk, Jason Dreho, thank you very much for joining us on How Should I Be Positioned? Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. It was a great conversation. A lot more that we can dive into in the future. Absolutely. We'll come back anytime. 
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.